0: This week on Life and Faith.
1: I think the fact that I was hanging around ashrams doing goat bleating was indicating that something was missing. Like even though I wasn't articulating that I was on this big spiritual quest and there was this huge hole, the fact that I looked for my um, birth mother, I was looking for reconciliation to something.
0: An opinion you can change, like you change a shirt, but a worldview is something like your skin colour. It's
2: part of who you are. I want to be able to read for two hours with no one interrupting me. I said, I know what I'll do will be heretical, but I don't want it to be blasphemous.
0: Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart.
2: And I'm Justine Toe.
0: Susanna McFarlane is a loved children's author and publisher with decades of experience in the business. She's also written a memoir recounting the year that, for the first time, she met her birth mother. Heartlines was published in 2016 and is co-written with her mother.
2: But that wasn't the only change in Susanna's life around that time. Having lived her life utterly uninterested in God or religion and being mostly hostile to faith, she actually went through a dramatic conversion. Now, these days, Susanna is head of publishing at Bible Society Australia and also a good friend to us at CPX. Initially, the shift towards Christianity was not good news for her. We asked her if she was anything like C.S. Lewis, who became a well-known Christian author, but who also described himself as the most reluctant
1: convert in all England. No, I didn't want to be a Christian at all. I thought that was a terrible (laughs) idea. And in fact, I was trying to make my birth mother and not a Christian and point out to her the madness of her beliefs that she'd held robustly for 40 years. So I was off to prove that it wasn't true.
0: Okay. So tell us a bit about that. So you were adopted. Tell us about meeting your birth mother and and what place faith comes into that.
1: So I was given up for adoption at birth and back in the day, because I'm old, it was totally closed adoption. So the promise to both sets of parents was this never happened. So to the birth parents, not your child anymore, she'll never come back after you. To the adoptive parents, your child totally, the other parents, so totally severed. Mm. In fact, I saw my birth certificate recently and it's totally blackened. Like it's just kind oh, of redundant. Yeah, and mm. then a new one put in its place. And I was really happy with that for certainly most of my childhood. I always knew I was adopted. Yeah. I constantly looked like I was photo bombing the family photos. Like there'd be my mum, dad and brother and then my sister and I, who were both adopted, mm-hmm. looking like just crashed the perfect family photo because <laughs> no kind of genetic similarity whatsoever. <laughs> um, so I... Knew that, and people would say, Do you ever want to find out about your birth family? I'd go, no, don't, not mm. interested. Um, hostile non searcher is the term. Apparently, there's a term for oh, people yeah. like me. That's you. Um, and when I was 23, the laws changed, allowing records to be kind of opened up again. And my birth mother wrote me a letter, and I panicked and was very afraid of losing my life parents. Mm-hmm. So I declined any contact. Um, and it wasn't until my mum died about 25 years later, and I'd had children of my own, and I thought, oh, that'd be terrible. Yes. You know, to have a child and not to have it wandering have around connection. the world. So I went in search of my birth mother. Very long story. So long we wrote a book about it, but mm. um, long story short, she. one of the things she told me very early was that she was a Christian. And I went, oh. <laughs> Bummer. It's terrible. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I suppose we'll go along with it anyway kind of thing. Um, and she wasn't just a Christian. She was a full-blown Pentecostal, okay. hands up, tongues out. It was like amazing, and I thought this is bad.
2: Sorry, Susanna, before we go any further, can mm. you give us a sense of what is your feeling towards religion as a grown adult who's now being told that your birth mother is a pretty intense Christian like how, how's that going to be received by you?
1: So I, I didn't think about religion at all, was fair to say. Like I didn't. From what I did love the soaring discounts of a good soprano at a school carol service, but that was really about as far as we went. Um, so when I found out my birth mum was a Christian and a full-on Christian, and she kept talking about how God was a person and He wanted to meet me, and I was going, "Oh no, she's mental." You know, like I finally, 50 years on, I meet this woman and I think I'm going to have a relationship with her and she's unhinged, you know. So, and she was um, dogged, like I think, you know, and she would kept bringing it up and I was getting difficult for me because I thought, no, you're crazy. Like you keep talking about this person, I'm going to have a relationship with him and he's been looking and I'm going, oh, you've got to stop.
0: So you're going to help her see how deluded she is yeah. and you set off to do what?
1: I did research, and I thought well I'll prove her that this is you know prove to her that this is not real and you know there'd been some like we all you know come a bit broken in life, so I'll prove that because of things that happened to her, she kind of ho- held on to this kind of crutch that's yes. built on nothing and it's a little bit embarrassing now, and um, I got to the bit about the resurrection, and I had, insofar as I did university at all, I did history, so I was kind of looking for kind of historical facts, and so I finded, found myself looking at the kind of historicity of the evidence and becoming clear that there was more evidence to account for the resurrection than there was from you know, pretty much any other historical event at that time. And I was just kind of being worn down by it. And I remember I was at my desk Googling. And I remember when I said a word, which I won't repeat here, going, ah, it's true. (laughs) And I remember writing in my journal that word again and going, I don't want to be a Christian. And I didn't. I thought Christians were terrible. Yeah.
0: So what, tell me about that. What was the that sort of gut feeling for you when well, you, first when you f- feared that this might actually have something <laughs> well, to it? Well,
1: the first was that I thought they were mad because yeah. they were talking to an invisible, you know, an right. invisible imaginary non-entity. But then I thought they were, I don't know, that they were rules and that they were judgmental mm. and that they abdicated responsibility. I just, yes. and they weren't fun and I didn't want to be one. <laughs> it was terrible uh. because I thought how am I going to get out of this? Yes. So I was still kind of squirming on the hook because I thought, I don't want to be a Christian. How am I going to tell my husband? How am I going to tell my children? This is a really, this is a really bad yeah. idea, but you can't unknow what you know. And that was the was the Was there clinch- a point
0: where that awful sense of this <laughs> turned into something that's more positive?
1: Um, yeah, and there were some moments... We had, you know I think if you look back with hindsight, you can actually see a kind of path that kind of um and there was a, a friend's mum had died, and we'd gone to a memorial service and there was i was um was actually at a golf course which was more appropriate for my kind of circle of friends, but I had this kind of sense if I wanted to go to church and take communion, mm. and I went to this tiny little church where I was was good for my self esteem because I was the youngest and the slimmest by about thirty years and thirty <laughs> kilos. <laughs> Always good, isn't that? that so happens. I thought, oh, that would work. But it was a very kind of small, mm. and I just took communion and I had this kind of sense of peace. Mm. But I just cast that off as a bit of kind of emotion and went on my, um, you know, went on my way. But it, I mean, it did get easier. But it was the reality of it that kind of cornered me, and I couldn't argue out of it. So I just thought, oh, well, now what? And, of course, my um, birth mother was very gracious about it, actually, (laughs) when I had to come back and go, oh, I think you might be right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure not everyone in your life would have
2: been reacting that way. No,
1: and almost everyone else thought it was a – that I'd also gone mad and gone mad because I'd kind of fallen into a relationship with my birth mother. So to be able to stay reunited with her, I'd Mm. joined Mm. in this kind of folly of delusion.
0: Prior to your prior to this going on, you, did you have any sort of a like? Was there a spiritual life that you had? I was a really
1: yeah. terrible Buddhist.
0: Uh-huh.
1: I was drawn to the, um, which from the little you know me might surprise you. I was drawn to the peace and calm of it because I'm terrible at peace. And calm. No,
0: no, that makes sense.
1: <laughs> and I always wanted to be that that woman that sits in the corner, Zen. ideally with high cheekbones, which is too late to get. And just listens kind of sagely and then smiles and says something really wise. And everyone goes, yes. And that's never me. I jump in, babble, say something unwise and have to kind of backtrack after that. So I was drawn to that kind of calm. And we'd been to Japan and the temples and the aesthetic. And I was kind of loving myself with that. And But I found myself, because I, I jump into things and then have to work out how to get myself out of them later. So we'd gone to an ashram. And I think that's when I started, my Buddhism started to kind of become a little bit unpicked because we were doing sort of yoga and there was some kind of bleating goat exercise. And I thought, oh, Susanna, what are you doing? Like you're you're kind of chanting words you don't know in a um, place that's not your kind of place. It just all felt kind of weird. So we kind of beat out of the ashram. But I wanted peace Mm. and I wanted, I wasn't trying to find the truth. I wasn't trying to kind of find any higher order i just wanted to be calm mm-hmm. and i wanted peace and i thought walking around a stumper saying words i didn't understand might offer it and certainly the buddhist you know not of the principles of that really appealed to me yeah. um and meditation and mindfulness i was terrible at it but apparently that's the point it's a practice you know yeah. all that kind of thing so i was i was kind of hunting but in a very weird way hunting for peace which is of course an oxymoron and
0: you yeah right and did you the impression you had of God, if you like, leading into this moment was what? Is it a bit like the Christians you had, this sort of very negative picture?
1: Um, Insofar as I thought about him at all, I probably thought he just was a distant. Like, I wasn't hostile to him. Um, I think also the being given up for birth comes with a bit of a kicker that yeah. you don't feel. Like, one of my favourite expressions kind of on the other side is accepted in the Beloved. Um, and if you're given up for adoption at birth, you don't feel accepted. And your, your striving comes from a sense you've got to keep your place. I'd love to say I thought about it a lot, but I didn't.
2: And yet, in within two years, you're reconnecting with your birth mother. Mm. And she, it sounds like, is kind of introducing you to a father of a different kind as yeah. well.
1: Looking back there's a beautiful symmetry that you'd be brought home first to your kind of earthly mother and then you'd be brought to a kind of heavenly father is a really nice kind of beauty to it. And I think that's probably how it kind of works. She did kind of lead me. She stepped out for a while when I was telling her that, you know, to be quiet and stop talking about it. But she talked about a person and she talked about a relationship and she talked about I mean who wouldn't want to at least look when someone says, Oh, He's just so excited. Like he will, he'll, you think you're amazing. He thinks you're amazing, even though you're going, oh, you're mental. You're also going, oh, really? Like your head's turned a bit by so that. So there's a
0: sort of a the, the concept that she's describing as an attractive one, even if at the at that point yeah, you I didn't. Sort of I thought it was invest. not
1: possible. But yeah, I mean, who wouldn't? I, I mean, I remember her saying, "He, you have no idea how excited he is." And I went, oh. part of me went, "I probably do. Probably not very excited." Mm. But so even that was a concept. Was oh, okay. But I didn't think I'll oh, have me some of that. I just I was too busy because post adoption reunions is tricky enough without dealing with kind of spiritual realities as well. So I think it had to happen in stages.
0: And what <laughs> what sense do you make of your life now in light of that conversion? As you sort of re you know, we all do this, you mm. sort of rethink through that the patterns of your life. Yeah,
1: you said before that you can detect a path, let's say Yeah, no, there's a cunning plan, I think. Mm. And I, I mean I think what i've learnt of god in the 5 years is that he um has very cunning loving plans for us all and it's all about reconciliation and it's about forgiveness and adoption reunion is essentially forgiveness it's like to forgive something potentially quite unforgivable and i think my best forgiveness work was done being a christian like i gave it a red hot go as a terrible buddhist but my best work was done when kind of you know god was helping me do it um And that peace and calm um, got a much better shot at it, I think. Because there is a surrender, and that's the bit I probably um, fought against as well. There has to be this moment where you go, okay, you do it. And I do remember saying to my birth mother, I can't do my life. And I think you have to come, come to the end of your rope to go, I can't do this. I'll give something else a shot.
0: life and faith and Justin and i are speaking with susanna mcfarlane about her unexpected and initially unwelcome spiritual yearnings that led her to christian faith the connection with the mother she was separated from at birth was a key marker in her life and was part of the shift that took her to a place of more openness to god and the promptings she now feels she was receiving from him all this was a shock to her and her family and her friends
1: Normally the conversation's avoided. Uh-huh. Like, um, so I, I did have a, a water baptism second time round, and my close friends, good on them, did come and they were a bit kind of like, oh, ah. <laughs> <laughs> So I must be loved by them. Um, a, a lot of them were interested to find out and because I'm not, like I am, I'm not mental. I am kind of... A, intelligent, well-read, I don't fit their boxes, because the boxes, we never normally know people that sit in those boxes. They're just, you know, kind of stereotypes. So it's perplexed a lot of people. Um, And also my children, because my children are um, adults, they're 24 and 21. Um, And they were, I mean, most people were angry. Once they stopped being interested, they were cross. They saw it as a betrayal, um, and that I jumped sides somehow. But um, my kids would say that I'm calmer, mm. and my daughter would say I'm, um, you know, she said you're more thoughtful and you're nicer, which makes it sound like I was terrible before. But I, I think that would be true. So. Were you
0: happy before this though? Was this was it? Were you kind of were there spiritual yearnings or? I think
1: the fact that I was hanging around ashrams doing goat bleating was indicating that something was missing. Like, even though I wasn't articulating that I was on this big spiritual quest and there was this huge hole, the fact that I looked for my um, birth mother, I was looking for reconciliation to something. Um, And it's only since then, the Bible makes sense to me. And I hadn't read it. I mean, First Corinthians thirteen—that was my—that was it. That was my full extent of the Bible. The,
0: so, for those who don't the know, that's the famous word. passage yeah. Yeah. about love. love that's read at every second school. And and does it's it? It's it is beautiful. It's great poetry. It is beautiful. That's, that was your the extent of your biblical knowledge,
1: pretty much, and the Ten Commandments that I was offered a dollar for. Everyone that I learnt by someone at some okay. stage growing up. So it's quite fluency. We won't test you on them now. No, um, but reading it as a—I mean, being a writer and a publisher to just read it as a book. I mean, it's amazing. Mm. I mean, the the interconnectedness and the symmetry, it is quite the most beautiful kind of book. But that thing, you know, you don't read the Bible, it reads you. It's kind of weirdly true. That's why I've, to end up in the job I've ended up is kind of interesting as well. So um, so now if I'm head of publishing at Bible Society and I've spent my life in publishing and a lot of my um, work in publishing, publishing well-known brands like Winnie the Pooh and Thomas the Tank Engine, and they've all been written. It's about bringing it fresh to a new generation and to show that there's still currency for it. So I think, you know, God's kind of really roundabout 50-year plan had a purpose to it because that's kind of what it is with the Bible as well is how do we make this book that people think they know um, fresh and relevant to them? And, you know, so I start with my kids. So I leave around. There's some beautiful um, versions of Gospels and things packaged by designers and everything and they don't look like the Bible which is code for they don't look boring and big and un- inaccessible and unapproachable and I leave them around for the kids to catch them off guard
2: <laughs> I want to hear you reflect on story because you're a writer a storyteller you could argue that the Bible's telling what the biggest story of all in some ways from yeah, totally. creation to the end of all time etc so yeah are there connections there that you as a writer would especially appreciate
1: I think like what you've said, there's this big story and then there's all these individual stories that retell it and fold into it. And then your own story fits into that as well. I think that's where we started. The Bible makes sense to me, the way it talks about life and love and loss and character and human weakness and human strength and human capacity. It just, it's it makes sense. I mean, I'm not in my due diligence, which is a terrible word to use for me because I'm the most unduly, undiligent kind of person. <laughs> I didn't do the science thing or anything. That to me wasn't important for me. It, and I think it it's the epicentre of faith is the resurrection. And once I thought that that was true, everything had to everything fall into the kind of place. So I, I'm not ticking those sorts of boxes, but in to- the story of the human spirit and the brokenness and the capacity to rebuild that and the kind of beauty of it, that's the truth of the... Bible to me and the the characters are amazing and just but the story weaving and the way that you can continue to see that in it, the Old Testament kind of foreshadows the New Testament I mean it's so you mean patterns and... Patterns, yeah. yeah. The, the narrative patterns and the arcs and the symbolism and the way the garden keeps playing in. I mean, it's the most beautiful work.
2: Garden being Garden of Eden and how it recurs. Is that what yeah, you mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just a little... I, and again, because you keep discovering it, you can go in these kind of deeper kind of dives and how the temples were actually, you know, recreations of the Garden of Eden. Stuff that probably you guys know, but it's a <laughs> constant discovery to me. that this. And you keep going, Ah, oh, this is so good. And, you know, if you think of prayer time as being this very solemn... But most of the time, I'm exclaiming. It's just like, it's great. Well, you know, when you read a book and something's funny or something, you go, ah, oh, this is great. Well, you do that when you're reading. I do. When you're reading the Bible. You just go, it's like, good one, God. Like, this is beautiful.
0: And so, a big, big story, grand story, but it also mm. puts you in the story. Yeah. Right? Do you feel well, that? Well, don't you think? Do you I have mean, a sense of it?
1: because you can see yourself in, in the characters and you can see in the choices, both good and bad, and in the kind of aspirations and in the. I mean, 55 and everyone walks broken one way or the other. And you can see the brokenness, but you can also see the kind of beauty and hope of redemption, which is where I think leads friends to go wishful thinking. You know, enough bad things happen to you, you're clinging to everything. And that that's true. I don't think many people who think their lives are completely under control and everything's going well, not many of them are going to kind of get on their knees and say, and hand over their life and go, I don't want to do this, you've got a better plan. Right. Um, so I do think... At my age, probably have to be a little bit broken to kind of do it. But the way that it's mended is amazing.
0: Has there been any big shifts in your life since you became a Christian?
1: Uh, Yeah, probably the biggest is um, I don't drink anymore, which is not a rule thing. Is not a – I've got – I don't know what a good Christian is. I'm pretty sure I'm not one, (laughs) but – that's not because you know I got I signed up to this club. It had these right, terrible so rules. Sort of, This is not a drinking. No, person, it's not a club. kind of rule thing at all. It was a very personal. And I I used to love a good drink. Known for my taste in Chardonnay and yeah. Abba, which is very again countercultural. So you know, <laughs> destined to be a DAG from the word go. Um, but I drank a lot, and I had a circle of friends who drank a lot, which can normalise it. Um, and if you're going to drink for quite a long time, your liver's probably going to be suffering a little bit and mine did but more um and this may be too weird so um but I having spent 50 years doing pretty much what I wanted I really wanted to give something to God because I felt I had actually been given something and I wanted to give something back and so you'd sit there going well what do you want me to do and I'm a none of this peaceful you know waiting on God business I don't seem to have grasped that yet maybe that comes in year 10 I'm much more come on let's crack on what are we what are we going to do let's carry on for the kingdom anyway I got a very clear sense like nothing weird like audible voice but can't use you if you drink and it wasn't mean and it wasn't it was just very straightforward and I equally straightforwardly said well I can't do that and then I said well you'll have to do it and the next morning, uh, not that I normally woke up to have a drink, but the next day I never drank again and I never missed it and I haven't drunk for two years. And that sounds like one of those weird stories, but it's totally true. And I'm incredibly grateful because I, my liver was actually... Struggling. Yeah, so it wasn't just like you can't be fun times at two o'clock in the morning because I'm here to say that I can still do fun times at two o'clock in the morning, but I'm not doing them by drinking and I'm not having... Um, you know, a very bad liver. And I do think that was, a, that was a gift. And it's not a gift, I'm slightly surprised I'm telling you now, because it's not a gift I always give God the glory for, which is probably a bad thing. But it's like that could just take me into such next-level weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: can I, might- uh, can I ask, you don't seem to be the kind of person who can let other things just happen to them. Does that make sense? Like you, you seem like a, someone who works hard, so you would expect to work hard at stopping drinking. Yeah. and yet it didn't happen like that.
1: You know, I'm an excellent driver, and uh, oh yeah, I'll do this and I'll do, it. and I and I couldn't do it because um, either personality or whatever. You just there'd always be another reason why. Oh, no, I just have this one, and then I've had that one, so I might as well do it tomorrow night. And then people are coming over on Saturday, so why? Like, what's the problem? And surely, if it's in a nice enough glass, who cares? You know. So, so my there was a lot of stuff around it. So it was a. Uh, to actually say, even if it's to myself or to another invisible friend, I can't do it, was terrible for me because that's not my right. thing. But I, I think it's very much his thing, you know. <laughs> Is that you know what's that? Um, strong in weakness, bad at scriptures. Yeah, I'm be a terrible professional. I am head a of professional publishing. Person, everybody, <laughs> <laughs> Bible Society Australia. <laughs> you know, through but not anyway, not not um, my strength, but his. And so it was a very clear transaction. It was, I can't use you if you drink. I can't do it. You do it. Okay. Bam.
0: Tell us about the hardest part about this new life you've come into. And then maybe it'd be good to know the best part of it.
1: Well, the hardest part is that there is, you know, some people do decide that you're too weird or you don't want to do it anymore. Um, I always, I kind of, yeah, no, that it's if you're going to believe in that. And Christians, like, it's, they get a bit of a beating and it's a bit of a bad look now. It's not the most on-trend, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, not of
0: the root to the cool part yeah. of the magazine. No, no,
1: and it's, you know, it's... No, it's terribly uncool. It's terribly counter-cultural. And um, why would you do that? And I suppose my answer to that is, what well, you don't really have a choice. It's You can't unknow something. And that is my reality and the fact that my reality might not fit with the way the kind of trend is going or even what i would choose you know i think it is an easier life in some ways if i mean my friendships have we weren't just agnostic we were atheist you know um agnostic was the mild kind of version (laughs) so but you can't unknow what you know and then it keeps being confirmed and the best part then the best part, and particularly, I mean, if you talk about story and symmetry, for someone who started their life alone, you're never alone, and that's a a real promise which I didn't believe. I just thought, oh. and also, if you're not alone, but the person's imaginary, that's not much help, is it? You know, invisible, but no, you're not alone. There is a sense of bad stuff can happen. I think that was the a few bad things have happened over the last years and going, well, where's your God? And I think there's a psalm that says, where's your God now? Like, what's he doing? And it's like, we were never promised that there wouldn't be trouble. It's just we'd never have to go through it alone. And I think that over the last couple of years and people said, why are you still standing? And it's kind of, I can gladly say because I'm not doing it by myself. And a lot of, they do crack through. Like this heaven would be hopeless if it just stayed up there, don't you think? Like it's a very long wait, you know, (laughs) if we're waiting. But the fact that I think heaven does genuinely break through down here, either through by the deployment of other Christians or stuff that happens. If you're someone cleverer than me said it, there's little God moments everywhere. You just have to be alive for them and, and we might see them and it's only looking back we go, ah, that's what was going on. And I think there's enough of that to, and that's what builds you up.
2: I have heard you say, Susanna, in the course of this conversation, um, comments about being countercultural. And I believe that uh, in... Fairy Tales for feisty, mm. feisty Girls. You describe Cinderella as the feistiest of all fairy tale mm. heroines. What do you mean by that? Because I do not, you know, well, like Cinderella best. is
1: not feisty at all. Surely. No, she is because her signature superpower is kindness and serving. That's not feisty. Yes, it is. Why? That's, you know, you should know. That. That's, that's the kind of, you know, Jesus superpower. It's in serving others and not putting ourselves first that we become strongest. And so for me when I was doing it, it's like kindness. Her superpower is kindness. So even though those terrible stepsisters are giving her a terrible time, she's that turning the other cheek. And she's and she gets her prince. So that's the reward, I think, is um no, so she's by far the strongest because it's it takes so much more strength to put up with that kind of crap when people are being terrible to you and to not fight back. That's need so much more strength than saying your piece. So she's no, she's absolutely my feistiest of the feisty. Because not doing something often takes a lot more control than doing something. Hmm.
0: Susanna, tell me about the way in which the story with your mum has woven into your biggest story. I mean there's woundedness attached to that, you know, origin story, if you like. And is there, is, there, is there any kind of real redemption? I mean, you've had it with your mum. Totally. Mm. No,
1: I mean, it's such a... Um, that slightly wacky film, The Tree of Life... Yeah. Oh, yeah, I With love With the beautiful that. last scene on the beach and everything is restored, That every, every tear is wiped away and they're all in white, which is always very glamorous, and linen and everyone looks great <laughs> and glistening and they're all walking along the beach and the father, who was a terrible father, is reconciled to his father, is reconciled to his son, is reconciled to his wife. You know, the, And there's, that's what I mean about little bits of heaven breaking through. So the return... So I lost my life mum, who I think I still needed... And I was given my birth mum and there's a huge kind of reconciliation and work of forgiveness for her and me. So I now get another mum to help me do the kind of next part of my life. Um, She gets a daughter that she thought she'd never have. It's such – and we get all these more people. I'm an all-in person. Like more in my book is just more. If you get more people (laughs) to love you, more people around the table, then that's just great. So I think that was – so being brought back home to her and then she brings me back to this bigger home. I mean, it's beautiful. It like would you you, you, be hard to be believed in a way. It's just beautiful kind of symmetry. And you put that in the context of the Bible where everyone's being called home and everyone gets to reconcile. And it's that abundant, like the prodigal son is not surprisingly a favourite tale of mine, being very prodigal um, and coming back and being welcomed so abundantly. I mean, it's just, that's all that amazing grace, which you think weird song, and everything, but you get it, like this unmerited favour and being shown by someone who knows how terrible you are, you know, like knows all the bad things and the things you, you know, you think as well as the good things, you know, there's still things that go to the pool room, but knows how terrible you can be and still loves you and will still kind of rush in a kind of very unglamorous way towards you. And so that's you know, what happened in the natural and have it happen in the other, which I have to say, can I, can I add to this? I was the most unsupernatural person in the world. I didn't believe it at all. It was like if I can't feel it, touch it, measure it. And I'm not even a scientist. I'm like a useless scientist. Never watched horror movies, never did any of that supernatural stuff. So I was totally thrown by the arrival of a supernatural kind of God, which really totally freaked me out. So that took quite some time getting used to.
2: The only thing we haven't really asked about is, um, like, your publishing work. I mean, I mentioned the fairy tale stuff. Because, I mean, even just now you said that, you know, you're not – you were not a supernatural person. But the mm. the literary worlds you inhabited, like Boy versus Beast, which is yeah. my kids, you know, like one of their favourite – kind of series to read like that is at least suggesting that there is a different dimension when you look back and all that are you seeing like the transcendent kind of popping up here and there but it just wasn't it hadn't Mm. come full term so to speak um at that point of your life
1: yes I suppose is the short answer (laughs) (laughs) in the kids I mean but the basic um good and evil like that's biblical you know that the thing that and that things go wrong and we we desperately want them to be fixed um, and in my kids' books, as the kids, they want agency to be able to, to fix them. But it is that basically good versus evil, and that plays out over fairy tales. That's all fairy tales are. You know, beware there are dark woods and there are evil wolves, and that's the same in real life. Um, so I think I've always unknowingly been kind of questing for that, to try to work you know, the good and evil, and the good will win. I don't want the bad guys to win. And those horror movies and those other movies where sometimes there's kind of this nuanced ending. I hate nuanced endings. (laughs) That's why I hated La La Land because I don't want a musical having that kind of, oh, and they all did really well in their jobs. I thought it was a perfect ending. No, I want everyone to be happy in love. I don't care if their career was more successful. I just want everyone home, everyone home reunited in love. So don't go, I'm Mamma Mia. That's my resting position. (laughs) So don't go giving me La La Land.
0: you should be a lot more embarrassed about that than you are about being a Christian.
1: <laughs> I know. See, strangely, that's been forgiven in the <laughs> bigger arc. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Susanna, you say that good and evil's all the way through fairy tales. We're sort of soaked in this story mm. that good will triumph over evil. Where does that come from? What's the big story attached to that?
1: Well, I think it comes from the story. I mean, that, and that is the story. The Bible is one big action, you know, like rescue plan. Um, and I think that's, you know, that is set in our hearts. That's the same sense of conscience and where do we get our sense of what is the right thing to do. There's a reality. We're very good at acknowledging the reality of evil, but there's also of good, and we want good to triumph. There's something, a basic human urge is for um good to triumph over evil and i think you know it's like eternity it's written on our hearts so we're constantly we're disconnected from the big story we might be a long way away from it but our baseline is that good wins and that's you know that's the end of the bible and should be will be the end of our story
0: This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart.
2: And me, Justine Toe. Susanna's memoir of the year she met her birth mum is written with her mum. It's called Heartlines, The Year I Met My Other Mother.
0: Susanna also writes kids books like the EJ12 Girl Hero series, the EJ Spy School series. You might remember some of these, D-Bot Squad and Boy vs Beast series fairy tales for feisty girls and she was also the force behind Go Girl and Zach Power. I remember my son getting into that one. And now Susanna is with Bible Society and has written the Who, What, Why, How of Christmas and also Easter, both really loved by children and parents. Next week. Alec is dancing with his wife and thinking about the end of his life and he says, then there'll be no more then, after there will be no more after. That's very deliberately constructed to allow for the possibility of eternity, because it's only no more sequence, no more time, it's not no more being, it's not no more hope, it's
2: just no more of the ticking of the clock.